from Psalm 109, verse 30. With my mouth I will give thanks abundantly to the Lord. In the midst of many, I will praise Him. And Father, we do lift our praise to you this morning. We're thankful that in the midst of this chaotic world in which we live, with natural disasters and human-perpetrated disasters, it seems, on every hand, that the sovereign God is in charge, unflappable, immutable, always there for his people. And even as we study this passage in Joshua this morning, we recognize through it the fact that you were there to steady the Israelites, to guide them, to teach them faith, to teach them confidence in God, and to enable them to be prepared for the great task that was before them in the conquest of the land. And Father, I pray that in it all, we too will learn steadfastness, that we will learn perseverance, that we will learn to be people who trust you no matter what seems to be the barrier in our way. We know, Lord, that you are greater than all of the problems that we may face. And we ask you to be here this morning in a powerful way. We know that the Word of God is, is a quick and powerful tool, a sword, in the hand of the Spirit of God. And so we submit to him this morning and pray that he will be our teacher. And in every class and in every place where the Word of God is proclaimed today, we ask that your name will be uplifted in Christ's name. Amen. If you'll turn to the sixth chapter of the book of Joshua, sixth chapter of the book of Joshua, we read the first five verses. Now Jericho was tightly shut because of the sons of Israel. No one went out and no one came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and its valiant warriors. And you shall march around the city all the men of war circling the city once. You shall do so for six days. Also, seven priests shall carry seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. Then on the seventh day, you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And it shall be that when they make a long blast with a ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat. And the people will go up, every man straight ahead. Again, if I can paint the picture for you, the plain of Jericho is located considerably be below sea level. Jericho is located about 900 feet below sea level. And all around Jericho is a great oasis. But as you move out away from the town of Jericho, you move into relatively dry hills that move up to the west, to the Judean highlands, and you go across the Jordan River and the Gore, as they call it, which is the, the last little uh, valley there in which the river is actually located. And then you go up across the plain to the other side and you rise up onto the plateau of Gilead. So you're in a graben, a down-faulted area here at the uh, city of Jericho. And from there, of course, the air would have been far clearer in those days than it is today. And, 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 and the, uh, you could easily see the Judean highlands and the Gilead highlands. It would have been a very spectacular scene for Israel there. The camp of the Israelites was built probably not more than three or so miles away from the city of Jericho. And so it would have been clearly within sight of the walls of Jericho. And the king of Jericho, we read in this passage, ordered that the city be sealed up tight. 
Although they were not yet surrounded, there's no evidence that Israel has completely surrounded the city of Jericho. The city was buttoned up as if it were under siege. Now we're told back in the fifth chapter, the first verse, we read this before, that the Canaanites, the Amorites, the, the, the people of the land were totally dispirited because of the presence of Israel and because of the miracles that God had performed. And therefore we might say, why are these people buttoning up their city? Why are they preparing for a siege? Why don't they just throw up at all the doors and say, welcome Israel, we can't fight you anyway? Well, because they're being empowered by, of course, Satan. Satan is the driving force behind them, and he is giving them the fear to, to, to try to wall themselves up. You know, it's kind of like we do when we face problems. Sometimes it seems too great for us. We build walls, and, or, or we, we pretend like the, the problem is not there, or it'll go away on its own, or something will happen, and we don't face it realistically. Apparently, they hoped that maybe Israel would just go away. Or, or maybe that their gods would finally get it together and be strong enough to resist the Israelite God. You, you don't know really what was going through their mind. But one of the things you have to know about Jericho is that Jericho is one of the oldest cities on this planet. The site of Jericho uh, dates back thousands and thousands of years. And there are only about two or three other cities that are as old as Jericho. Katalhalyuk in, in, uh, in uh, Turkey, uh, Jarmo over in Iran. There's, there's only about three or four cities that archaeologists have dated back as far as they date Jericho. Now Jericho has gone through numerous levels of occupation and the Jericho of Joshua's day was not the greatest Jericho that ever stood on the site. The city had been a large city at one time and had been destroyed back in the third millennium before Christ and had been destroyed again a couple hundred years before the Israelites came by the Egyptians. And so it had been rebuilt, built and rebuilt. That's one of the things that's fascinating about studying in, in that part of the world is that they, they tended to build a city where there was a kind of an elevated area so that you could have defense and view around and then where water was available. And as a result, cities tended to be built at the same place. And so when one was destroyed, they built right on top of it. And when it was destroyed, they built on top of that. And so the tell keeps rising. And that's what they call it in Arabic, a tell. It's a, a mound, a human-created mound. And archaeologists, of course, love these because they can cut into them like you cut into a cake, you know, and, and look at all the different levels of occupation. They call these occupation levels. And so Israel is coming up to a very ancient site upon which cities have been built sequentially before, and they are now attacking, of course, the current city of the day in which they lived. Now, Jer uh, Joshua had just had a theophany. He had just had a face-to-face -face confrontation with God in human form. And God had confirmed to Joshua that Jericho was his. The city would not stand. The city would be delivered into Joshua's hands. And yet, as Joshua and the men looked at the city, it looked as strong that next day as it had the day before. The city was unchanged in their view. It was as imposing as ever. There is a powerful lesson in this, I think. If it had seemed to Joshua, oh, Jericho, oh, puny little city, piece of cake, we can take this with 500 guys, you know, just walk up there, push on the wall, it falls over, you know, and we'll capture the city. If that had been the case, what would be the role of faith? <laughs> Where would faith be in this all? 
it wouldn't be anywhere, would it? What is the point of walking in faith if we find problems easy to surmount? If we find difficulties easy to circumvent or to climb over? That is not how life is, is it? I mean, we constantly run into problems that seem so great. They seem like Jerichos to us, uh, walled cities, and we have no way of, of getting through those walls or getting over those walls or getting under those walls. We must face them square on. There is no way we can conquer the Jerichos of our life, whatever they may be. You know, our Jericho could be an illness. Our, our Jericho could be a financial problem. Our Jericho could be uh, interpersonal problems we're having within our home as a family or at work. I mean, there are all kinds of issues that create insoluble problems. That at least they seem to be that way to us. And obviously, if we could deal with all of these in our own strength, what would be the role of faith? What would be the need of God? We wouldn't have any need for God. What is interesting about this is, though, we discover faith is not just for a moment either. We don't just say, oh, God, I believe you. Did you do it yet? <laughs> no. Because they had to believe God, they had to pray, they had to obey, and they had to do it day after day. And each time they walked around the walls and they went back to their camp, the walls were as solid as they were before they ever walked. Nobody could walk up and say, oh, do you see that crack there? Do you see this crack over there? You know, each day a few more cracks. No. The walls looked as solid and formidable after six days walking around it as they did the very first day. There didn't appear to be any change. And often that's the way it is in our lives, isn't it? We're praying, we're dealing with an issue through faith, and it seems like it is, nothing is happening, nothing is changing. But what we discover is that we have to hang in there in faith. To use the vernacular, you won't find that phrase exactly in Scripture, of course. But that's what we have to do. We have to continue to believe God because God will give us the victory over Jericho in his time and by his means. Most of us, I think, are familiar with this verse. You, you don't need to turn to it. I'll just read it. It's a short little verse in Galatians chapter 6, verse 9, where we read these words, And let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we shall reap if we do not grow weary. Now that is a powerful verse on perseverance. And perseverance is one of the truths that we need to learn as Christians because we, we live in a society that wants it all and wants it now. You know, We're in the instant gratification society and that isn't how God works. God has a plan and he wants us to walk according to his plan, not us dictate to him the plan. Because if we try to tell God what to do, well, <laughs> to put it in the vernacular, we're barking up the wrong tree. That is for sure. The plan of action that God gave to Joshua was very unmilitary-like. You know, God didn't say, okay, go over here, build these siege engines, and you'll come at night over here, and you'll roll them up against the wall, or let's build a tunnel over here, and you'll go under the wall, and the gates will collapse. No, he says to them, you're going to march around the wall. You're just going to walk. It's going to walk, blow some trumpets, carry the ark, and that's what you're going to do. And, you know, I think Joshua felt a little uncomfortable having to explain this to his captains because Joshua encountered the Lord, and the Lord gave him the plan. God didn't gather all the generals and say, all right, you guys, this is the plan. I've... Joshua had to explain it to him. And he has to go and say, look, this is what God said to me. And, you know, I think there were a couple of eyebrows that kind of went <laughs> like this, you know. 
and he got some facial expressions from his generals that indicated maybe they thought he was slightly losing Dutch with reality here. This is a real city out here, Joshua. It isn't just going to fall down all by itself. Oh, yeah? <laughs> I'm sure that's what they thought. I mean, you know, they're still neophytes at this generaling thing, but they're, you know, that's really, that's kind of dangerous, isn't it? I, I've not served in the Army, but I've heard a lot about second lieutenants and uh, second lieutenants who have been through the training, you know, and they come fresh out of training officer school and they think they can command on the battlefield and a lot of them end up dead because they don't listen to the sergeants who've been in the army for 25 years and know the real thing <laughs> that's, that's going on. And, you know, a lot of these generals, they, they have fought a, a few battles and they've won a few victories and it could be that they kind of had their own idea about how it all ought to work. But you know, God made this plan intentionally so absurd that absolutely no one could take credit for it but him. I mean, how could the generals take any credit for it? Oh, there are those. Now, if you want to really hear something humorous, there are those who have said that it was the stomping feet of the marching men that weakened the foundation of the wall and that ultimately when they yelled, then the city fell down. No, do you believe that? Well, I don't think so. They build these city walls on stone foundations. They don't build them on sand, especially since Jericho has been a powerful, had been a powerful city for thousands of years before Jericho, uh, Joshua ever came there. And so these walls were not already antiquated, full of holes ready to drop over, you know, moth-eaten or some such thing. Uh, they were strong battlements. From the human point of view, what Joshua was telling his men was ludicrous. Absolutely ludicrous. Now Joshua could have reacted like another man did later in Scripture. Some of you probably remember the story of Naaman. Naaman was a captain in the army of Syria and he had leprosy and, and he had heard from an Israelite that there was a prophet over in Israel who could help him. And so he went over to see the prophet. He, you know, he exhibited faith by going on this long journey into an enemy country to hear the words of Elisha. And Elisha said to him, go dip seven times in the muddy Jordan River and you shall be clean. Now, Naaman was a tough commander of the Assyrian hordes. Dip seven times in this pipsqueak little muddy river over here? I have far nicer rivers over at Damascus. But, of course, he did it, and he got healed. Which, you know, sometimes faith operates that way. Sometimes we think, oh, I really think this is crazy, but I will do it. And the doing of it is an expression of faith. Some people think faith is this idea of being absolutely convinced to the very core of your being it's going to happen. No. How many times does that happen? It's being obedient to the Word of God. If he says, do it, and we do it, that's an act of faith. Joshua did not react that way. Joshua had led Israel in victory over the Amorites and the Amalekites. They had defeated the Amalekites out in the desert. They had defeated the Am Amorites in Gilead and Bashan. And never had this been done before. And yet, Joshua had acknowledged the leadership of God. And more than that, he had fully and willingly submitted to God's generalship in this army and in this battle. It is your battle, Lord. I am submitting to you in this. Therefore, Joshua's only responsibility was to trust and obey. 
And what is fabulous about this is he did it. He did it. He trusted and he obeyed. And as, as I read that, uh, this, this verse um, came to me. I'll just, again, turn to it quickly. It's not on your outline there. As you read these words at the end of the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Your toil is not in vain. Whatever raised eyebrows he got from his generals, however foolish he felt telling them this unmilitary-like practice, he did it anyway. He did it anyway. And he obeyed God. And he trusted. You see, trust was foundational to the obedience. He wouldn't have done it if he didn't have a basic trust there. And so he trusted, he obeyed, he did what he was told. What is interesting in this passage as we read it this morning is the number seven shows up frequently in these situations like this one. And of course, the number seven symbolizes fulfillment. It symbolizes perfection. Some people like to take numbers to all kinds of crazy extremes. But to me, I, I don't believe in all of that. But I do believe that it symbolizes this, the presence of God in all of this. And God told them, take seven priests and take seven trumpets and take seven days and march seven times on the seventh day. All of that as a symbol that God, this is God's plan. God is there and God will do it. Let's read on in chapter 6, beginning at verse 6. So Joshua, the son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant. And let seven priests carry seven trumpets of ram's horn before the ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, Go forward and march around the city, and let the armed men go before the ark of the Lord. And it was so, that when Joshua had spoken to the people, seven priests carrying seven trumpets of ram's horn before the Lord went forward and blew the trumpets. And the ark of the covenant of the Lord followed them. And the armed men went before the priests who blew the trumpets, and the rear guard came after the ark while they continued to blow the trumpets. But Joshua commanded the people, saying, You shall not shout, nor let your voice be heard, nor let a word proceed out of your mouth, until the day I tell you, Shout, then you shall shout. So he had the ark of the Lord taken around the city, circling it once. Then they came into the camp and spent the night in the camp. Now Joshua rose early in the morning, and the priests took up the ark of the Lord. And the seven priests carrying the seven trumpets of ram's horn before the ark of the Lord went on continually and blew the trumpets. And the armed men went before them, and the rear guard came after the ark of the Lord while they continued to blow the trumpets. Thus the second day they marched around the city once and returned to the camp. They did so for six days. Whatever may have been Joshua's doubts, Whatever may have been his reservations, it is with no apparent, no recorded hesitation that he set out to implement God's plan. He had to, of course, organize the people to do this. And the people had to be told basically what was going on. Probably a few more raised eyebrows. But whatever the case may be, the people do it. A large body of armed men would march around the city. We have a, a front guard and a rear guard here, a vanguard and a rear guard here. We have hundreds, probably thousands of men leading the way. Then we have the seven priests blowing on their shofars. 
and then the ark carried by the Levitical priests, and then several hundred or several thousand more men marching behind them. Now, the shofar needs to be, again, uh, emphasized, as I have in other instances. We're not talking about what we think of as trumpet, trumpets. You know, they're not playing some little tune here. The ram's horn is, is literally a horn ram, and it goes, beep, beep. you know, I mean, it's pretty monotone. Uh, but it's loud and shrill, and, and you know, everybody gets the point. And of course, I'm sure for the people in Jericho, they got a little tired of the tune after a while, as it was played all the time that they were marching around the city. I think it seemed to be a bit of an odd procession in the minds of both the Israelites and the Canaanites. Uh, it was obviously a religious procession because it contained the priests blowing the trumpets and the Ark of the Lord, which even the Canaanites, even though they didn't understand what the Ark of the Lord was, they could see it was some kind of a holy, you know, relic as far as they would be concerned. And it was carried out so solemnly. Now, there was no sound except the blowing of the shofars and the marching of the feet. The people were commanded to be silent for the entire 13 circuits of the city. Now, I don't know about you, but to think of keeping all those people quiet for that length of time was probably, well, of course, they're military guys, you know, a little bit of discipline maybe here. Uh, but they haven't been paraded for six years, you know, like in some instances here. They uh, are still a little bit uh, green around the gills here. But nevertheless, they're quiet. They just march. Grim-faced, silently march around the city. And they too probably after a while, uh, were worn a little thin by the shofars. To the people of Jericho, as they viewed this now, you can just understand, the army of Jericho is on the wall. The army is on the wall. Because that's how they're going to defend the city. When the attack comes, the soldiers must be on the wall to beat off the attackers. It's the purpose of the wall. The wall is to keep the attack focused at one spot, and that's the top of the wall. And as they witness... The presence of armed men in this religious procession, I think they were both mystified and somewhat threatened by it. Why are there soldiers marching out here in this religious procession? It seems to be an odd mixture here. And I think there were a few, probably the more profane amongst the Canaanites, who after a while began to think this was a rather humorous thing. <laughs> They think out there that by walking around, they're going to scare us to death. Well, they are, but I'm not going to let them know, you know, that we're being scared by this. I, I think in many of the pagan minds, there was this thought, what is Israel doing? Now, we have to think of the pagans, of the Canaanites, in their terms, not, not in the terms of what we know about God, in their terms. So what in the world would you do something like this for if you were a Canaanite? You would do this to appease your God. You're trying to convince your God that he ought to do something on your behalf here. Because in all pagan uh, polytheistic religions, you're talking about appeasement. You're constantly appeasing the gods so that they'll be happy with you. In fact, the whole basis of Hinduism, the whole basis, the whole foundation of Hinduism is to keep the gods happy so they won't destroy the world. And so that's all they could see here, that maybe somehow they think by doing this, their God's going to be happy with them and maybe somehow he'll do something to hurt our city. But of course, how could he do that? We have these big stone walls that stand between us and the Israelite army. I think there were a few, probably the most vain and profane of the Canaanites who even cried out at the Israelites rather derisively and maybe 
even defiantly, yelling obscenities at them, probably in Canaanite, whatever that would be. And I think that as the Israelites proceeded, day one, day two, day three, day four, day five, everything's the same. I think their profanities became a little more sharp. You guys are idiots. You know, what are you doing out there? Why don't you go home, back into the desert where you belong? But what about Rahab and her family? What do they think of this whole thing? How do they view it? Well, we know how they view it. They view it through Rahab's window. That's how they view it. Uh, that's what they could do because we're, we were told in Scripture that Rahab's house sat so it overtopped the wall. And so they could see over the top of the wall yet be inside the building. And so they could watch the Israelites going by out there. And at first, of course, they probably were thrilled. Oh, the enemy army, I mean, the Israelite army's there. It's going to happen. And then day two, day three, day four, <laughs> you know, what is going on here? I think that it was a rather strange sight, even for Rahab. Now, remember, Rahab had a very embryonic faith. She does not have a taught faith. She has a faith that God has given her. It's a faith based on the little tidbits she has heard. Whatever the two Israelite spies explained to her of worship of Yahweh, we don't know. Probably something. But her faith is, is very newborn. And I think it was severely tested here. But God was faithful. God kept her believing. And God kept her and her family in that house in spite of what seemed to be very absurd activity on the part of the Israelite army. And day after day, the Israel army passed out there without even one little indication that they were about to attack the city. Now, something about Jericho. Jericho was a strongly fortified city, obviously from this passage of Scripture. But Jericho was not a large city in the sense of what we think of today, of course. No ancient city was large in terms of what we think of as large today. Even one of the greatest and most powerful fortified cities of all history, the great city of Constantinople, was only a few square miles in area. Well, if you've ever been to Israel and been down to Jericho, you know that the site of ancient Jericho is very small. Tel el-Sultan, which is the name given to the mound uh, where ancient Old Testament Jericho was located. There is a New Testament Jericho. There is a modern Jericho. There are three Jerichos. And the new modern Jericho, of course, is out around both New and Old Testament Jericho. Nobody really knows for sure how big the city was that Joshua faced, but it's very probable it was not much more than maybe 10 acres in size. It was, a, it was a small city from our perspective, but that was still a fairly large fortification to have to deal with. When you think of the medieval world and armies attacking these, these great castles, well, most castles weren't more than an acre or two. You know, so this could be a very difficult task for them to do. And so it didn't take them all that long to circumnavigate the city. Ten acres, perimeter probably about half a mile. And of course, they weren't running, they weren't walking at, uh, you know, heart elevating rates. They were walking at processional speed. So it probably took uh, the leaders maybe somewhere in the neighborhood of 20 to 30 minutes to, to make the circuit of the city. 
how long it would take altogether depends on how long the procession was. Obviously, the first person starting out around the city, if it took him, let's say, 20 minutes to make the circuit, how long does it take, however, several thousand men parading, I don't know how many abreast, maybe five abreast, walking around the city? You know, it's going to take a while. You know, a procession altogether could take at least an hour, uh, maybe more, for them to do this. And, and to march around. You know, the scripture just is, simply says that the army of Israel marched around Jericho. It doesn't say how many men there were in this. It certainly was not the entire male population of 600,000 uh, men. It would, that would, uh, how long would that take? It'd take forever. And besides that, they'd worn a groove in the ground. Maybe that's what happened. They kind of cut out the city. <laughs> After six days of what seemed to the Canaanites a very, very strange procession, they were baffled, and I think some of them were a bit spooked. Certainly they had inside the city sufficient water and sufficient food to resist a siege of probably many months because these ancient cities all were geared towards this. The very fact that Jericho fell many times in its history to conquering armies just is a testimony to the fact that in the ancient world, attacks on walled cities occurred at a fairly rel uh, regular uh, rate. And as a result, these cities had to be prepared. And they had to have enough food inside to last for fairly long periods of time. Sieges are known to have lasted for at least as much as five years. So you can imagine how much food and water you have to have inside to maintain a city for five years. Obviously, uh, a, a siege that long probably requires a little uh, additional help in terms of water. But food supplies to, to last a long time. We know that when Samaria was put under siege by the Assyrians, that after a siege of between two and three years, they were starting to turn to cannibalism. But here, uh, they certainly were able to hold out for several months. And I think they were hoping that Israel wouldn't play this strange game forever. Because whether Israel attacked them or not, they couldn't leave the city as long as Israel was out there. So they were hoping, probably, that Israel would just get tired of this game, they would see that their God isn't going to do anything, and that they would go away, or that they would settle down to a normal siege. You know, these soldiers in Jericho knew how to fight a normal battle, but they didn't know how to deal with this. I think that within the Israelite camp, there were probably some also whose patience was wearing a little thin here. I, I think it's really important for us to think humanly about these people, and not to just think that they're all you know, two million people of great faith just waiting for those walls to come down. I don't think so. I think there was murmuring and complaining. There were people who were saying, when is Joshua going to get over this silliness? When are we going to get on with this campaign? You know, it's just normal human understanding. And I think there were some who were beginning to think that Joshua was becoming a little eccentric here. Maybe power was going to his head. Some probably thought that Joshua's vision that he declared he had of the Lord may have been just a hallucination. But whatever the thoughts were, whatever the thoughts were, the reality of the thing was that they all obeyed Joshua. They obeyed Joshua. They marched, they were silent, and they did it day after day after day after day. They did it. Whatever they thought, they did it. Why? Because the scripture tells us that God had elevated Joshua in the eyes of the people. They may have thought him to be a bit eccentric, but they still saw him as their, as their God-ordained leader. And so they would obey. Secondly, God had just done a great miracle in the crossing of the, of the Jordan River. 
And so the idea of a miracle was still in their heads. Well, I don't know what God's going to do, but let's, let's give it a try. And of course, their part in the siege wasn't all that difficult. Just get out and walk around the city once. You know, big deal. Go out for a half an hour stroll. Uh, look at the walls. Listen to a few bad words coming from the walls. Tune into the shofars or tune them out, whatever. And uh, it wasn't taxing, wasn't dangerous. You, you have to understand, probably most of you saw that veggie tail one where they're walking around the wall, you know. They were not walking around the wall like that. They were outside of bow shot. They're not going to walk around where they can start throwing stuff at them. Um, they were at least a bow shot away. They were walking out around the city a, a ways uh, so that some guy in the wall couldn't just take a shot down there and knock off a priest. You know, that would be a bit uh, humiliating. So they, they were out there a ways. I mean, they were being practical about this whole thing. And then finally, they only had to wait a week. <laughs> they only had to wait a week. And then they would find out whether Joshua knew what he was talking about or not. Well, let's see. I'm going to have to... Let, let me just read the next passage and you can be thinking about it. I don't like to leave it hanging, but there's nothing else I can do right now. Then it came about on the seventh day, verse 15, that they rose early at the dawning of the day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. Only on that day they marched around the city seven times. And it came about on the seventh time when the priest blew the trumpet, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. And the city shall be under the ban, and it and all that is in it belong to the Lord. Only Rahab the harlot and all who are with her in the house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But as for you, only keep yourselves from the things under the ban, lest you covet them, and take some of the things under the ban, so you would make the camp of Israel accursed and bring trouble on it. But all the silver and gold and articles of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord, they shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted, and the priests blew the trumpets. And it came about when the people heard the sound of the trumpet that the people shouted with a great shout, and the walls fell down flat. So the people went up into the city, every man straight ahead, and they took the city. And they utterly destroyed everything in the city, both man and woman, young and old, ox and sheep, donkey, with the edge of the sword. <laughs> 